Welcome to episode 14 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. David Farsi, chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and president-elect of AAEM, speaks with Dr. Evie Marcolini, assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine and AAEM board member. In this episode, Dr. Farsi and Dr. Marcolini will discuss high blood pressure in patients with subarachnoid bleeds, traumatic brain injuries, and acute ischemic strokes. Good afternoon from sunny Florida. I am Dr. Farsi, your host for the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Critical Care Podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with a friend of mine, and an amazing, accomplished physician. Dr. Evi Marcolini is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Neurology at Yale University School of Medicine. She is also on the board of director for the American Academy of Emergency Medicine and speaks at several conferences, organized the Scientific Assembly for the American Academy. Today, we're going to be discussing about blood pressure management and intracranial processes. How are you? And thank you very much for taking your time for speaking with us today. David, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here talking about blood pressure. And I'm really happy that it's summer. Yes, yes. So I think we're going to start with a case scenario for each of the bleed. And we'll discuss four bleed. We'll discuss about subarachnoid, intracranial hemorrhages, traumatic brain injury, and acute ischemic stroke. This is no specific order but we'll just kind of discuss what goal and when we should be doing some blood pressure management. So yesterday we had a 29-year-old female who came into the emergency department with the classic subarachnoid picture, you know, sudden onset of the worst headache. And on CAT scan, we get a CAT scan come back and confirm or believe that she had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. When we looked at her vital, her blood pressure was in the 180s to 190s. My residents and I were discussing what is the best measure or goal for blood pressure management in patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage. That's a really good question. And with subarachnoid hemorrhage, you really want that blood pressure to come down and to come down quickly. Once you realize what you have as a diagnosis, we get the blood pressure down because the greatest risk that you're facing is the risk of rebleed. If that's an aneurysmal subarachnoid, at that point in time, the mortality is about 25%. But if that patient rebleeds, the mortality goes up significantly. And in the emergency department, that's our most important job after diagnosis is to prevent rebleed. And the way we do that is by maintaining blood pressure low and treating pain. So in our shop, we hang a nicardipine drip and we push the blood pressure to less than 140. And you can use nicardipine, you can use labetalol, you can push labetalol 10 or 20 until you're getting your drip hanging. You can use hydralazine if they happen to be bradycardic. But the most important thing is to get that blood pressure down and to treat the pain. And I don't have good science to tell you why that number 140 is so important. There are data using animals. There are old data, but it's generally accepted 140, maybe 150 to bring that blood pressure down. And the reason for this is because you're trying to reduce the hydrostatic pressure 
within the artery to theoretically reduce that risk of rebleed. So I think it's a very important point, something you mentioned that I don't think many of us take in consideration. Pain in those patients is going to have an adrenergic effect. It's going to stimulate you know, heart rate and blood pressure. So I think it's very, very important to treat pain in those patients, address the pressure the medication of choice. I'm not going to say whether it's nicardipine. We, we happen to use also nicardipine because of readily availability and easy onset and duration. It's available. What about nitroglycerin? Nitroglycerin is not necessarily a first-line agent that you would want to use. It tends to vasodilate and might increase your risk of ICP heading up. And in general, when you think about the subarachnoid, you're thinking about the aneurysm that's there, the blood that's there, that's in general going to cause some ICP issues. You may have hydrocephalus in place. All of those combined, depending on what you see on your CAT scan, you want to avoid ICP issues as well as avoid that risk of rebleed. So if that's all you had was nitroglycerin, you could use it, but it's not certainly a first-line agent. I think the nicardipine is so readily available everywhere, that's probably the best agent of choice anyway, right? I agree. In Australia, they don't have nicardipine as far as I can tell from the folks that I've talked to there, but in the States, we have it, and it's easily titratable. It's easy to use. We have nicardipine in our pharmacy delivery device in the emergency department, so the nurses have it readily available. You just brought a very, very important point. Those medication, whatever the drug of choice you pick in your shop, should be readily available. should be in your Pixis or whatever pharmacy dispensary mechanism you have, but it should not be coming from pharmacy to avoid time delay. If we look at some study, it, on average, pharmacy will send anywhere between two to four, five, six hours delay for receiving it versus having it in the Pixis. So I think that's a very important point. Yeah, that's true. And now that we're talking about that, the having it available to nursing is important and also recognizing that this patient is now a patient that should be in the ICU. And the reason being is they need one-to-one -one nursing care. We've had many cases where we set the goal of blood pressure less than 140 and we asked the nurse to get the nicardipine and to hang it. And you know how it is in the ED, that nurse has about four or five, maybe six patients to take care of. And so the nicardipine and the blood pressure goal doesn't necessarily get to the top of their list right away, where it's definitely at the top of our list for the rebleed risk. So when you have the resources in the ED that are stretched thin, that's not where you want your patient to be who's got any kind of an intracranial bleed or stroke or TBI. You need that one-to-one -one nursing. And for that reason, nicardipine is easy, it's quick, but really you need to work on getting that patient up to the neuro ICU as soon as possible. So that's, I think, a very important point that you're mentioning that those patients, subarachnoid patients, we need to control their blood pressure, we need to control their pain, and they should be admitted to the ICU with having a conversation with interventional radiologists. So anything else you had on subarachnoid? Yeah, you know, we should talk about if you're in a tertiary care center and receiving a patient, or if you're in a sending hospital and sending the patient, there's certain priorities that need to be addressed. And with the subarachnoid patient, the first one by far is lowering the blood pressure. And I think that sometimes we feel this urgency to send the patient fast. And in some cases, we really need to slow down to speed up, which means don't put the patient in the ambulance 
in the helicopter, whatever you're using, before you take care of those things that can increase risk. So by all means, if you haven't gotten the blood pressure controlled, take care of that before the patient leaves your shop because sending them quickly to a tertiary care center isn't really going to save much time if they have a re-rupture. And I think it's important for the communication to happen with sending and receiving physician to say, these are the important things. We would recommend getting a nicardipine drip, for instance, bringing the blood pressure less than 140, making sure that the pain is controlled. And that can be with an infusion. It can be with boluses, doesn't really matter. And also making sure that the folks who are transporting the patient have the ability to titrate that medication. I'll tell you where I work. On the ground, if we send somebody by ground ambulance, most of the services in the state of Connecticut do not have the ability to titrate nicardipine on a ground ambulance. So sometimes if their blood pressure is difficult to manage, we will send them by helicopter, not because they need to get here faster, but because it's so important to manage the blood pressure. So you have to really figure out what are the capabilities and what is the scope of practice of your paramedics and your crew that's transporting the patient. And I think that in most cases, with a neurologic emergency, there seems this sense of urgency. Got to get them out quick and get them to the tertiary care center. But as we'll talk about with some of our cases today, like this case, this girl is going to get her pain controlled. She will get her blood pressure down. She'll go up to the neuro ICU. If she has hydrocephalus, she'll get a ventriculostomy. If she doesn't, she'll spend the night in the neuro ICU, and in the morning, she'll get intubated ventriculostomy and go for angio, formal angio, and either get clipping or coiling. Most of the time, we see coiling because it has better outcomes in the long run. So there's not a big rush to move this patient toward the neurosurgeon. The big rush is really to take care of the blood pressure and the pain. And I think that's a very, very important point because our podcast is listened by a lot of our community doctors and residents and fellow. And I believe it's a very important point for them to understand if you're at a receiving facility, giving instruction, making sure, you know, keep systolic blood pressure less than 140, make sure pain is addressed. Make sure that one of the questions I get a lot with those patients that we talk about is, well, you know, I'm afraid about the airway. Maybe we should intubate. Intubate on those patients should be really intubated for airway failure and not for a preemptive because you want to see the patient mental status. That window of the patient is so much more important because we'll get more information from the patient than we get having an intubated patient. Yeah, that's a really good point. If you're sending a patient and the trip is going to take an hour, you have to actually make an estimated guess. You have to make a judgment call as to whether or not they're going to lose their airway. Sometimes that's difficult to do. So if their headache just started an hour earlier and they have a very large bleed and you anticipate that they're going to lose their airway, you want to intubate them before they leave because the last place you want to intubate somebody is on a transport. So that would be the question. But as you said, and you said it well, is when you take the airway, you take the exam. And, and now we can't really see a deterioration in exam if the patient is intubated and paralyzed. But I would say use your judgment. If the 
headache started 10 hours ago and it's a small bleed and you have a good feeling that the patient will maintain their airway, don't intubate them. The, the other thing we should talk about here is anticoagulation. If the patient is on any kind of vitamin K antagonist, antiplatelet agents, you should reverse those. And we are aggressive with this. If somebody's on a vitamin K antagonist, we will use prothrombin complex concentrate or PCC if that's available. If it's not available, we use FFP the old-fashioned way, but we do know that that takes longer. It increases the risk of volume overload, and it has all other kinds of risks associated with it. And we're starting to see some good data that PCC not only reverses the numbers, but clinically works faster than FFP. The patient is taking an antiplatelet agent. In the case of subarachnoid, we would give them platelets. Aspirin, Plavix, we would give platelets, and we would look at their renal function to consider giving DDAVP. If they're on the novel oral anticoagulant, that's a different story. And the first thing we ask is, which agent are you on? Because if you're on dabigatran, we now have an FDA-approved antidote called Prexbind or Idarucizumab, and we can use that. If they're on the 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban, edoxaban, apixaban, we don't have an FDA-approved antidote for that, so we tend to go with PCC, and we ask, how long ago did you take the last dose? Because if they have a serious bleed anywhere, whether it's neuro or GI or something, and they took it two hours earlier, now you may be mobilizing your nephrology team, consider dialysis. You should have a protocol in place at your hospital for anybody who comes in with a bleed on one of the novel oral anticoagulants. You need to check with the novel oral anticoagulant. Not all of them are dialysable, and there's new therapy coming in. We just need to stay on top of it, and that's probably a podcast by itself. Absolutely. Remind all the residents, is if you're using PCC, make sure you give vitamin K also to the patients. So I think we've kind of covered subarachnoid pretty well. And now I'd like to go to another made-up cases to illustrate the point. But a 67-year-old male comes in with complaining of a headache. He has a facial droop. Headache is may have some sign of neurological deficit. We'll say his NIH is 7. And when you get the CAT scan, you see that he has intracranial hemorrhage. And he's currently, blood pressure is 220 over 108. Heart rate is in the 80s. He's sitting 96% on room air, and he's able to protect his airway. So what's our goal here? Yeah. So this guy has an intracerebral hemorrhage. Let's just first start in talking about airway, because it's the first thing we think about. You said his exam is intact, except for the facial droop? He has some facial droop, some deficit, maybe a pronator drift, but he has no major deficit. Okay. So again, if this headache started recently, you know, within the past couple of hours, and you can target the trajectory of how he's deteriorating, maybe he has a facial droop and a drift and that's it, and he's been that way, and he's solid, and you think he's going to protect his airway, and you have to transfer him, don't intubate him. Because, again, when you do, you lose the exam. And with the intracerebral hemorrhage, the exam is even more important 
because we want to know if this bleed has expanded. That's the big fear of the intracerebral hemorrhage is that the bleed expands. Without having definitive science about this, we believe that the bleeds expand for two reasons. One is the blood pressure is high and there's hydrostatic pressure causing that bleed to expand. Two is there's anticoagulation on board that has not been reversed. So those are going to be the first two priorities, bringing blood pressure down and reversing anticoagulation. So let's take those separately. First of all, the blood pressure. In this case, we do have some data, and we have the ATT&CK2 trial that was published in New England Journal in 2016. And that trial was actually, it's the latest trial, but before that we had the INTERACT trials. And the ATT&CK trial is important because what it did was it randomized people to lowering blood pressure to either less than 180 or less than 140. And in the world of blood pressure for neuro, we generally have thought more is better. So if we're bringing the blood pressure down, then bringing it down even lower will be better at decreasing the risk of this bleed expanding. And so we all anticipated that results from the ATT&CK2 trial were going to show us that. As it happens, it didn't show that. And there's a couple of interesting things about that trial. First of all, they only use nicardipine, which is what we tend to use in this country. So the INTERACT trials that happened prior to this used multiple different agents, and it really wasn't as generalizable to our population. But this one used only nicardipine, and all the patients had their blood pressure lowered within four and a half hours from the onset of the headache. So what we're really talking about is that patient comes in, headache is there, it's early in the game, and you're lowering the blood pressure. Do they do better if we push the blood pressure lower? And if you look at this study and look at the results of what the mean hourly systolic blood pressure was in the first 24 hours, the folks with the intensive treatment, meaning those who we tried to push the blood pressure less than 140, their blood pressure was around 120 to 125, 129. In the standard treatment, which is pushing the blood pressure less than 180, the blood pressure was around 140. One of the questions that's in my mind is, where is that true target that we want? If the less than 180 folks were living at 140, how is that very different from the less than 140 folks who are at 120? And so I think that's a question. And what this trial showed us was that the folks who were in the intensive arm didn't have better outcomes than those who were in the standard arm. And some people might say, great, then don't push the blood pressure less than 140, just leave it less than 180, and that's what we should do. But I have a little bit different take on it. And with the patients that were enrolled in the study, we didn't randomize them or we didn't ask the question of where do they normally live with blood pressure? So if you have this guy who's 67 years old and he comes in with a headache and a facial droop, is he on antihypertensive? Is he a patient who has previous medical history of high blood pressure? Is it well controlled? Because if he lives, like many of my patients, if he lives in the 200 range most of the time, that's what his body is used to. And his kidneys are used to seeing that kind of blood pressure to perfuse them, as well as the rest of the organs. So in that patient, I think he will do better if we only target less than 180. If you take a patient who is 29 years old, who has 
normal to low blood pressure at baseline. You don't want their blood pressure to be less than 180. You want it to be more where they usually live, right? And so I try to figure out with the patients that I'm taking care of, where do they live? And do I have any clues as to that? Maybe their family, maybe they can tell me themselves. Maybe we know that their blood pressure is normally high. Because if you take that guy and you push his blood pressure less than 140, now his kidneys aren't going to get as perfused as they need to. So in summary, the ATT&CK2 trial was important for us. It was discontinued for futility because there was no difference between the two arms. But I think we have to recognize what it says and what it's not saying. And look at our patients individually and try to come to a reasonable estimate. So at our shop, what we do now since the ATT&CK2 trial is we do exactly that. We take into consideration the patient, the patient's history, where the blood pressure typically lives, and we maybe will target less than 180, less than 160, or less than 140, depending on the information we have. I just want to reemphasize this. I know that my residents are probably like laughing right now because they're not just hearing this from me, but they're hearing it from somebody else. I always mention this, that we don't know blood pressure is in number. We don't know where the patient lives. We don't know their compliance with medication. And it's very important to try to find some of that information because like you said, if the patient lives at 180, bring him down to 140 might be the wrong thing. If he's living in a 120, 130 range, maybe we want to keep them in a 140. Reading a trial, you have to really look and dissect down in, in, in trials. And if we look at this attached to trial, like you just mentioned before, the mean systolic pressure during the first two hours, 128 in the intensive treatment, and that was maintained almost up to 25 hours, plus or minus 16. And then the intensive group, it was 141, plus or minus 14. My question I have, is this really answering anything? It's answering that maybe we shouldn't be targeting blood pressure below 120, but I think the range is going to be pretty big between 140 and 160 should be acceptable goals. Would you agree with that? Definitely below 180. Your patient came in with a blood pressure of 200. That needs to come down. Right. And if you look in the ATT&CK trial, it's a pretty significant big core of patients, 1,000 patients, with a mean systolic blood pressure of 200. So most of those patients, if not all, are going to be hypertensive. So they're going to need some sort of blood pressure reduction. The goal is where do you pick the goal? And I think, like you said, 140 to 160 and obtaining more information, talking to the family, looking at your computerized medical record. If you're lucky that the patient lives in the area, maybe he's gone to the, an office and you're able to look at the vital sign from the last office visit. And I think some of our residents don't appreciate the detective work that's sometimes you have to do in the emergency department to obtain some information because we don't have the privilege of knowing the patient. Yeah, and it's interesting. We really focus on this because we have data that says that higher blood pressure and anticoagulation is associated with bleed expansion, but there's still a lot of science to figure out about this, not in the least what should be our target. Well, let's talk about anticoagulation with these guys because this is another very important point. Just as with subarachnoid hemorrhage, if there's anticoagulation on board, we need to reverse that. 
If there's a vitamin K antagonist, they need to get vitamin K as well as PCC or FFP. But in this case, if the patient has an antiplatelet agent on board, we don't necessarily give platelets. We used to give platelets with anybody who had an antiplatelet on board, but we have now the PATCH trial. And the PATCH trial randomized folks with spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage. And it's important to clarify that. This is not for subarachnoid. It's not for TBI. It's only for the spontaneous bleeds. And they randomized folks who were on an antiplatelet agent to getting platelets or not getting platelets. And what they found was that the folks who got platelets actually did worse. So this used to be just a knee-jerk reaction. We have somebody on antiplatelets, we'll give them a pack of platelets. And now we're being very thoughtful about it. So the cases where we will give platelets are when the platelet numbers are low, or if the platelet numbers are less than 100,000 and they're going for a procedure like a ventriculostomy or a surgery like a craniectomy or craniotomy, we'll give platelets then. But if it's just that they're on aspirin or on Plavix, we don't give platelets. That's a new piece of data. That's a new study that's been out and it's very slowly changing people's practices. But I think we should recognize it and get the word out there. Absolutely. And I think we covered the intracranial hemorrhage. So just to recap, subarachnoid dropped his blood pressure fast and with a goal of less than 140. For the intracranial hemorrhage, we're going to drop it fast, but we're going to direct the goal is really looking for where the patient lives, and we're going to maintain systolic pressure anywhere between less than 180 and 140. Can I add another point here? Sure. The intracerebral hemorrhage patients, again, if the patient needs to be transferred, it's so important to address blood pressure and anticoagulation before transferring the patient. And this is probably the patient that I see the most coming into our shop who has been transferred from an outside hospital where the focus was so much on getting the patient to us quickly and not as much on reversing anticoagulation and lowering the blood pressure. And we see these patients with their bleeds expand from the first CT to the second one. And I'll tell you, unless this is a traumatic bleed, it's very rare that we're going to do anything surgical or interventional to take care of these patients. When these patients get to our shop, we're going to do the same thing you're doing. We're going to reverse anticoagulation, bring the blood pressure down, take care of everything else that needs to be taken care of, and then we put them up in the neuro ICU and we watch them. So we're not doing anything that's very time sensitive in most cases. Now, if it's a suboccipital bleed, then they may get a craniectomy sooner than later. But in most cases, this is a basal ganglia bleed or a bleed that's deep, that's not amenable to intervention. And the biggest thing we do is monitor them very closely for blood pressure. And so don't feel this great need to rush and get the patient to the tertiary care center quickly unless there's a specific reason for it, because then it's going to be hurry up and wait. And you will have missed an opportunity to reverse anticoagulation or bring the blood pressure down. And I think that's one of the most important things out there for patients who need to be transferred. For my residents, you just heard Dr. Marcolini give you the answer why in neurosurgery sometimes say, hey, 
this is why you're calling me at two o'clock in the morning. There's nothing I can do. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll still say that, you know, at the end of the day, neurology and neurosurgery should team that's going to be taking care of that patient. That's a very good point, David. And I would add here, if you get this patient in your shop and you call neurosurgery and you wait for them to return your page, send somebody down to see the patient, go back up to see the senior resident or the attending and say, okay, there's nothing for us to do, then you've lost time. What we're doing now, and we used to do that, and patient would sit in the ED forever. What we do now is we call neurosurgery and neurology simultaneously, as well as we know the patient's going to the neuro ICU. So we notify the neuro ICU. Everybody knows about this patient because most of the time, as, as you were saying, neurosurgery is not going to do anything. There's not going to be anything to do. And the patient will need to go to neurology in the neuro ICU. And depending on how your services work, admitting somebody to the ICU, I wouldn't wait around for neurosurgery to come see, assess, determine that they're not going to do anything because you know that it's not going to go to them anyway. And, and that's been, been a source of much discussion. And when we changed our system to call neurology and neurosurgery simultaneously, it made life for the emergency physician much easier. I want to reemphasize that point very strongly because we don't practice and we shouldn't be practicing medicine based on your local custom. So your neurosurgeon doesn't like to be called at 2 o'clock in the morning or your neurologist said this is you know, blood in the brain equals neurosurgery. This is a multidisciplinary approach. We're going to go on to the third patient. And the third patient, we're going to discuss about traumatic brain injury. And traumatic brain injury meaning bleed secondary trauma that caused the bleed. Not to confuse a patient that had an intracranial hemorrhage and then fell. Okay, sometimes we don't know which one it is, but we need to really understand that the one we're talking about now is a traumatic brain injury. So let's say 22-year-old male involved in a car accident pretty high velocity deacceleration injury. He's come in with a GCS of four LMA in the field. Blood pressure is now 100. He's tachycardic. We do chest x-ray fast. We don't find any source of bleeding. In this patient, he's not bleeding. So CT, and then we see that he has some traumatic brain injury with some blood in the frontal lobe. All right. Good case. We're going to intubate this guy. And during the intubation, this is really important with intubating any of these patients. So when you intubate the TBI patient, you don't want the blood pressure to drop. There's some new brain trauma foundation guidelines that were recently published in 2016, and they have increased the number that we should be targeting for blood pressure. And what they're saying is we don't want the blood pressure to drop below 100 for the patient who is 50 to 69 year old. Or if you're less than 50 or greater than 69, you don't want the blood pressure to be less than 110. Now, if you remember, our target used to be 90. Back in 1993, when Chesnut did his study, he said if you drop the blood pressure below 90 once, whether it's pre-hospital or in-hospital, patient's mortality increases significantly. So we've always thought, got to have that blood pressure over 90. Well, now there's a lot more data out there, a lot of people showing us that more blood pressure is better. 
for TBI patients. And this is for TBI patients only. So there's one article by Spate out in Arizona. And they did this really cool study where they followed people with isolated TBI, severe TBI, from the field. And they followed their blood pressures every five minutes, brought them to the emergency department, and enrolled them in the study so that they had 3,000 patients with blood pressures that were monitored from pre-hospital through hospital. And they showed us that patients do better every time the blood pressure is five points higher in increments all the way up to 135. So that's asking the question, well, 90, probably too low, 100, 110, probably better. Maybe we even need to go higher. And we do need more data to really flesh that out. But the big message here is with TBI, the worst thing you can do is let the blood pressure drop. So when we're intubating, we want to be careful of the agents that we're using. And sedating agents, if you used propofol or if you used thiopental or if you used Versed, you're going to drop the blood pressure. We use Etomidate or ketamine. And ketamine used to be taboo with TBI because we used to think ketamine will increase the blood pressure and the heart rate. Thereby, we used to think it would increase ICP. But we went back and looked at that and we realized that cerebral perfusion pressure is what we're targeting. We need to keep the cerebral perfusion pressure high in TBI, and that is a battle between the ICP and the mean arterial pressure. So the ICP from the bleed, from the swelling, is trying to compress the arteries. The mean arterial pressure is trying to keep the cerebral arteries open. So we want the mean arterial pressure to be high. We want it to be higher than the ICP. So for you and me sitting in the emergency department with this 22-year-old guy, we have no idea what his ICP is. But we do know he's a severe TBI, he's got a GCS of 4, and we need to keep that blood pressure up. So the guidelines tell us don't let the systolic get less than 110 for this guy. And that's, I think, based on you know what we know, that's probably a conservative term. But in general, we should not be lowering the blood pressure for any TBI. And that's important to realize because when we get neuro patients in, for me, they come in four flavors, subarachnoid, intracerebral hemorrhage, TBI, and acute ischemic stroke. And we need to keep separated in our minds what we're doing with the blood pressure for each one of those patients because if there's anything the brain is going to be sensitive to, it's going to be blood pressure in these acute injuries. So, so we're intubating this guy. We'll either use Etomidate or we use ketamine we'll get him intubated and then we're going to watch the blood pressure and if he drops starts dropping close to 100 or below 100 I'm going to give him fluid first off I'm going to give him hypertonic saline because he's TBI I'm thinking about osmotic therapy if I give him mannitol which has been the historic treatment that's not a bad thing but mannitol will cause a diuresis and you have to keep up with the fluid on that to make sure that doesn't cause so much so that you volume deplete and then drop your blood pressure so hypertonic saline is probably a better option for this guy and I have had cases where I've given both hypertonic saline and mannitol and that's the first part we're intubating we're maintaining the blood pressure again if he you know this is a 22 year old guy he's probably not on any anticoagulation but we should just say if he is, it needs to be reversed ASAP. So I think we discussed about traumatic brain injury at length for the goal. So again, the traumatic brain injury goal maintains systolic pressure above 100 and in a younger or the extreme patient above 110. So I think we're going to go to our last complete difference. There's no blood, but we're going to talk about the acute ischemic stroke. And that's completely the difference. We're going to want to preserve 
the auto regulation. So let's say a 70-year-old male comes in via EMS because was found to have altermental described as confusion, may have a facial droop, he has an ED fast score of four within the TPA zone. Let's start with that. And his blood pressure is 210 over 120. So this is a guy who's got an acute ischemic stroke. We've already figured that out, right? Correct. So we do the CAT scan. We don't see any blood. We don't see, we don't see any evidence of ischemia yet. Right. And he clinically has a stroke. So we're going to try to get him within the zone to give TPA if he qualifies without any other exclusionary criteria. Now you want his blood pressure to be less than 185 in order to give TPA. And you can use anything you want to get that blood pressure down. You can use labetalol, again, nicardipine, something that's quick, something that your nurses have and are familiar with, and something that's titratable is good. Sometimes you can just give one dose of labetalol. 10 milligrams, and it'll take care of that problem, or even low pressor or calcium channel blocker. It doesn't matter how you get it down, but you do want to get it down and reliably have it down so that you can give TPA. And then once, if this patient then goes on to get TPA, once that's given for 24 hours, we're going to let that blood pressure ride on the higher side. And really, I would let it ride up close to 180 if it wants to be there. The other thing that we do when the patient comes up to the neuro ICU is we ask the question if the patient is blood pressure dependent. So patient is sitting up on the stretcher and you do their exam and maybe you have an AH stroke scale of eight and then you put their head of bed flat, let them be there for a few minutes and then get another exam and see if the exam improves. In some cases it will improve and we say then that the patient is blood pressure dependent. And what we do upstairs is we'll keep their head of bed flat as long as we can and as long as they still do respond to that blood pressure dependency. And sometimes we'll even start a presser and push their blood pressure up to keep it above a certain level, maybe above a level that we determine they do better at. And the reason for this is the theory is you have a large vessel occlusion and you're trying to perfuse the brain around that using all the other circulation that you have. And that takes a little more blood pressure. Now we can't get too crazy and push the blood pressure too high because if you have achieved any kind of reperfusion, the area that's subject to stroke or the area that has stroked is now subject to a reperfusion hemorrhage. So we have to be very balanced about it. But in the emergency department, when we're looking at that patient first coming in, the blood pressure wants to be less than 185 to give TPA. If we give TPA, we keep it up high. And it's probably not until several days later that we'll let the blood pressure go down to normal levels. We let it go high. And actually, the brain is going to do that on its own. It's going to auto-regulate. It's going to try to perfuse that penumbra of ischemic tissue in order to prevent it from being recruited into the necrotic core of the uh, infarct. Correct. And this, so the reason I started with the hour frame was exactly what, where I wanted you to go, was to talk about the blood pressure, because in this case, the patient is a TPA candidate. And if we look at some of the paper, 10% you know, of patients get excluded from TPA just solely based on their, on their blood pressure. Actually, 
you have to remember it's intervention. So if they failure to lower the blood pressure after intervention, that's when they don't meet, assuming they don't have any other TPA contraindication, but they should be receiving TPA. Now, let's put him outside the window of, of the TPA. Now, the patient comes in with a blood pressure of 200. I would tell my resident, don't touch it. Leave it, leave it at 200. I'm not going to worry. What number, do, I mean, do you agree with that? I don't see. So first of all, we're going to try to get some imaging to gauge how big is this stroke. And by the exam, we'll be able to loosely gauge that as well. Let's say it's a, a malignant MCA stroke. So it takes up more than one-third of the hemisphere, and it's a large stroke. If that blood pressure is high, and I can't do anything about it, whether it's TPA or endovascular therapy, and the best I'm going to do is just watch this patient, that's going to be a tricky question because the higher the blood pressure is with a very large stroke, the higher the risk is of a reperfusion hemorrhage. So we're going to put our heads together with the stroke neurologist and the radiologist engage the size of the stroke. It might take an MRI to accomplish that, depending on how far out they are. But if we're outside of the window for any intervention, now our goal is perfusion without increasing the risk of hemorrhage. Just for me and for, for my residents. So in this patient at 200, from the emergency point of view, where no intervention, TPA or endovascular, can be done, in the emergency department at 200, we're just going to let it ride. And until we have further evaluation? I would say with the 200, it's prudent to bring it down to less than 180. And at the same time, getting your imaging and looking at the exam. Does this patient have a bad stroke? What was his clinical exam again? Facial droop, some altered mental status. His NIH, I think I said five or seven. Okay. So that's it's not a really bad stroke. So he may be able to tolerate some blood pressures up near 180. But 200 high. I would bring it below 180 and have the conversation with neurology of where should we target this blood pressure. And I think it's important to know that having the discussion means just that. I don't think anybody has definitive answer of where the blood pressure should be. And, you know, in everything we've talked about today, what I'm describing is guidelines and suggestions based on standard practice and some data but blood pressure in neurologic disasters is probably one of the most fertile field for research to, to try to figure out the answer. It's really very little of this is absolutely definitive. Correct. So we should use the less than 185 drug to maintain some sort of blood pressure control for the acute ischemic stroke patient? Yes. And bringing it less than 185? Not letting it go too low because if the blood pressure is too low, then you're going to risk that penumbra, the ischemic area, becoming infarcted. Again, so the importance in preventing hypotension even more in those patients for who you're going to do an, a procedure on, like intubation, we should definitely be on a worry side, right? Yeah, I would be. And whenever we intubate a neurologic patient, it's a little different from intubating the pulmonary patient who's in respiratory failure because the things that we do to the blood pressure can have significant impact on the process going on in the brain. And with the ischemic stroke, definitely don't want to drop the blood pressure too low, nor do you want it to go too high. 
You want it to be less than 185, less than 180, and yet not too low. This is not somebody we're going to push the blood pressure down to less than 140. We're going to let them auto-regulate over time in most cases. Okay, so I think we're coming to the end of our podcast. I think we've done a pretty great review of neurological intracranial emergencies, blood and subarachnoid acute hemorrhagic stroke traumatic brain injury, and acute ischemic stroke. So in conclusion, anything you want to like to add? Yeah, I think just in wrapping this all up, number one, it's important to know what disease you're dealing with. Is it subarachnoid? Is it intracerebral hemorrhage? Is it TBI? Is it ischemic stroke? Have in your mind an idea of where you want the blood pressure to be with each of those entities. Maybe you even put it in your iPhone for reference, but Know those targets. It's easy to get them confused, and it's easy to forget. Who am I worried about with platelets, and who am I not worried about with platelets? So just have a cheat sheet and keep them straight. And the second most important thing is don't be in a big rush to send the patient anywhere before you've dealt with blood pressure and anticoagulation. Those are the two most important things in most of these disease entities. And the third is it's always very easy to call neurology or surgery, even if they're not in your shop, to call and say, this is what I have, this is what I'm planning to do, and talk about it. There's many cases where we can make general statements about what to do with TBI, what to do with intracerebral hemorrhage, etc. But I've seen a lot of neuro patients who break the rules, and they might have a bleed that makes no sense at all. We don't know if it's traumatic subarachnoid or if it's aneurysmal subarachnoid, so we don't quite know what to do with the blood pressure. It's always good to have a conversation with radiology and with neurology and to go back and go over the images with them and have a conversation about what do you think this is and let's make a decision on how we're treating it. And those I think... I think that I just want to reemphasize that point because that's very important. You know, the emergency department, I'm sure your hospital has a stroke committee. The emergency physician should be on the stroke committee. They should discuss the protocols. If you have an order set, order set should be revised based on data that's coming out. And having the conversation before, you may even have a board in your resource room with the key numbers that we should achieve for those disease process. But it's not at 2 o'clock in the morning that you want to be calling somebody and saying, what's the target for your comfort level? That's something that should happen way before and at least engage your team when they come by and just engage them in a conversation so everybody in your shop knows what's the costume at that hospital. Exactly. So thank you so much for your time. It was a great pleasure in speaking to you and thank you very much for listening. Thanks, David. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out AAEM Connect, where you can engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Find all episodes of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine and other podcast series on the AAEM website underneath the Publications tab. Join us again next episode as Dr. Farsi will discuss another topic of importance for emergency physicians.